0: Welcome to Nurse Narrative, the Auburn University School of Nursing podcast, where we invite you to join our story. In this episode, our hosts interview Dr. Fred Kam, director and internist at the Auburn University Medical Clinic.
1: Welcome back to Nurse Narrative. Thank you so much for joining us. I am Kelly Strickland, your host, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ms. Megan Jones. Hi, Kelly. How are you? I'm doing all All right. right. How are you doing? I'm all right. I am um, missing seeing your face in person. Yes. Uh, we are actually on this. Uh, we're recording this episode via Zoom. We are practicing social distancing as a result of the um, pandemic that's happening currently, coronavirus. And that's what our topic is today. We are joined by a very another very special guest, um, Dr. Fred Kam. Uh, Megan, do you want to tell us a little bit about him? I would love to,
0: yes. So Dr. Cam is a board certified internist. He has over 30 years of experience in medical service delivery, including 24 years as the medical director of the Auburn University Medical Clinic. In his role as medical director at the AU Med Clinic, he is on the front lines helping Auburn, the Auburn community prepare and manage our response to the current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And Kelly, I... I really enjoyed this episode. It was very helpful. Lots of very practical information, um, things that I was still confused on. I think Dr. Cam did a great job of helping me understand um, what the information we've been reading means and what we should be doing. So I'm I'm excited for this episode. I think this is very important episode for our listeners, for the community, for all of us to have a better understanding of what exactly is happening right now in our community and what we can do to make a difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can tell just by listening to Dr. Cam how much he is on the front lines and mm-hmm. how much he is experiencing um, and, and he is preparing our community to mm-hmm. really uh, work up to the, the strain that we possibly can experience here in the mm-hmm. next couple of months. So you can tell that he has so much expertise um, or as much as you can in this uh, mm-hmm. novel Uh, virus at this point. So we really um, appreciate his time and his effort to come on with us. So um, without further ado, we will get to this episode with Dr. Cam. Welcome back to Nurse Narrative. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a little bit of a different setup today. We are all on Zoom. Um, And we have an incredible guest for you today. Dr. Cam, thank you for joining us.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, we'll just jump right into our questions, if you don't mind. Our, our first one is, what is coronavirus?
2: Okay. So coronavirus is a family of viruses. Okay, so a type of virus. And right now, this is the seventh one that we're most interested in. There are six other coronaviruses that we know cause diseases in humans. The first, I won't go into each specific subtype, but four of them uh, are one of the uh, group of viruses that cause the common cold. In fact, those four viruses cause about one-third of the cases of the common cold. Other viruses that cause the common cold include like the rhinovirus. I'm sure you've heard of all or your, view, your viewers have heard of that. Um, but this, uh, then, then we have two others that came to prominence, uh, SARS, that came to prominence back in 2002, 2003, and then MERS, which is the Mediterranean one, that became, again, prominent back in, like, 2014 or so. And then, of course, January of 2020, we have the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes the COVID-19 disease or illness. So... Okay,
1: so that kind of answers that question of what's the difference between coronavirus and COVID-19. I think, you know, a lot of listeners might hear that and think, well, why are we using two different terms to differentiate? So um, could you speak just briefly to the difference between the two terms?
2: Okay, so SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus that was uh, given, and it came up with that because of the close uh, genetic association to this original SARS virus and so it's called SARS-CoV-2. The illness itself is COVID-19. Okay, so, okay. So, so that's the distinction.
0: So the virus is the SARS-CoV-2 but then if I were to, to contract that virus, the illness in me as a person, as a human being, is referred to as COVID-19.
2: That is, that is correct.
1: Okay. That's very helpful. Thank you. Yes, I would agree. I, I've been kind of confused on the different terms as well. So thank you for that distinction. Uh, so how does this disease spread?
2: So based on what we know, the disease is spread through uh, aerosolization and droplet. So someone coughs, someone sneezes, okay? Uh, that creates the virus in uh, in a some sort of a uh, vectorial liquefied form it may get someone may breathe it in into the respiratory tract and then from there it may also get on, on surfaces such as hard surfaces etc like a doorknob mm-hmm. a light switch okay mm-hmm. someone wipes the hand and then they inoculate themselves with the virus by rubbing their eye touching their nose their mouth some other mechanism that's why we talk about not touching your face which on average, the average human touches their face about 23 times per hour. Okay. Per hour. So that's going to be a challenge for a lot of people to train themselves to deliberately not touch their face. But that's what we know about the virus at this point in time. You know, the big thing that, that happened was that, again, the scientific belief is that this virus started in an animal host, most likely a bat And then somehow it got into a human, mutated from that human to then start human-to-human transmission. And it started, we believe, in Wuhan, China, uh, a city of 11 million people. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't have started at a more opportune time because the outbreak really began just before Chinese Lunar New Year. Now, Chinese Lunar New Year, most people don't know this. Uh, it's similar to Thanksgiving in the United States. A lot of people travel and they travel to get together as families. And typically in China, uh, for Chinese New Lunar New Year, about 400 million people travel. So in a city like Wuhan, where there's 11 million, millions of people were traveling out of Wuhan and into Wuhan. And based on uh, information that was given in China, by the time the Chinese decided to lock down Wuhan, China, about 5 million people had already left. And so it was within a very short period of time that the virus was picked up in all 31 provinces of China, provinces like a state, just like how uh, we have states in the United States. So it, it spread pretty rapidly. It's a very contagious virus, very contagious Uh, clearly, uh, Mm. because at this point in time, again, the virus came to prominence starting back in right really the first or second week of January. Mm. At about this point in time, we have over 454,000 cases around the world that have been confirmed.
1: Mm.
0: That are confirmed, and that's an important detail.
2: Based on the definition, it's considered confirmed. So mm-hmm. you have to realize that there are a number of cases, be well beyond that four hundred and fifty-four thousand as of today, uh, that are happening. That that again doesn't hit that number. Wow. Yeah.
1: Ooh, that's a lot. <clears throat> so at this time, you know, I know treatment is changing rapidly, but at this moment, what does treatment look like, and is there a cure as of yet?
2: So at this point in time, there is no cure. You know, the only cure that we know, that we believe, is when a person's immune system gets over or uh, handles the virus. And we're still learning about that. As far as treatment, there are a lot of things that are being looked at, none of which have reached to the point of us saying, this is the definitive or should be the widespread treatment. There are over 70 drugs that are being tested. Some have already proven to not be effective. Uh, some of them, none of them yet have really gone through what's called the randomized control trials um, that you would require, again, to say that this is the cure. Okay. Uh, there's even uh, trials being done with using plasma from patients who have already gotten over this virus to see if it makes a difference, and uh, those again are very s- small process, small trials that are ongoing. The data really, as far as publication, is being reviewed and or not yet fully accepted. Mm. So, so treatment right reading. now, yeah, treatment right now is supportive treatment, just like you would for another virus for which there is no cure. Uh, or medication. And that's where, that's where the coronavirus or this particular, again, COVID-19 uh, disease differs from the flu. With the flu, we typically have vaccines, okay, and we have medication that actually treats the flu. With, mm-hmm. COVID, with uh, COVID-19, we don't have a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2, and we don't have a treatment medication uh, per se that cures SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, you know. So, so that's a big difference.
1: Mm. That is pretty significant. So, with your in your professional opinion, do do you or can you predict some type of ending point for this? What's what's our time frame here?
2: Um, we don't know uh, what the time frame is. Uh, obviously, we hope it's sooner rather than later. So, how does a virus like this typically, you know, stop? Well, a few different ways. Number one, we develop a vaccine that's effective, safe, and can be mass uh, mass distributed and protects against the population, you know, that, that may come into it. So that's one option. The second, we, we find uh, medication or two or more that, again, can treat and or cure the COVID-19 disease. The third is, is that, let's say, the virus mutates into a form that is no longer really contagious. And so the, 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 the virus, because it's now in a pretty benign form, dies out and it goes away which is something that we saw with SARS, okay? Um, so those are, are the kinds of situations that can happen where this would end. There's a fourth entity, and the fourth entity is where enough of the population gets infected with the virus, overcomes the virus and recovers, and then develops you know, longer-term immunity to the virus, and you develop what's called herd immunity. So if enough of the population gets infected and enough of them have uh, immunity to it, then it's very hard if the virus comes into that community to find a host and establish for the purpose of, again, uh, spreading the disease even further in an outbreak format. So that's kind of the timelines. Now, um, what we've heard from renowned scientists who are uh, do a lot of work in this area, is that it, it, is, it is unlikely that we will see a vaccine ready for mass distribution uh, before uh, 15 to 18 months from now. And, and as far as medication, you know, we might be able to find some treatment that shows tremendous promise that is safe, effective, and all of those things. Uh, but even then, you know, for it to be licensed and and, and released for mass usage, that could take you know up to 12 months. So we're in this for, a, for, it's more of a marathon than a sprint.
1: Yeah, yeah. That is very, very helpful, I think, for everyone to hear. Um, so along with that, what are some other things that you believe that some of our community members need to know about this disease in addition to what you've already graciously shared?
2: So with the disease, based on data that we've seen coming out of China, South Korea, and other places, about 80% of people have asymptomatic or mild disease and mild, uh, sorry, mild symptoms. So uh, you could have, you know, some fever, very similar to, to, to the flu and very similar to a lot of every, other things like allergy symptoms or a sinus infection, things like that. So fever, fever, cough that's uh pretty the cough historically is dry initially and then uh, shortness of breath but you know we've seen people with headache uh muscle aches again all symptoms similar to the flu uh um can happen so eighty percent asymptomatic or mild twenty percent you know uh more uh significant symptoms uh most of whom will end up being hospitalized. And then 5%, so a part of that 20%, ends up really in intensive care, possibly on ventilators. And uh, again, right now, the prevailing rate for deaths related to this virus is running somewhere you know, around 35 to 4.5%. If you just took the number of deaths, Divided by the number of uh, cases, it's running uh, north of 4%. In some countries, like Italy specifically, is getting hammered. Their, their uh, mortality or death rate is up in the 9.5% or higher. Spain mm-hmm. is also seeing. The United States so far has seen a rate of uh, mortality somewhere in the one3 to 1.5%. Of course, right now, the epicenter in the United States is New York.
1: Wow. Wow. Those are pretty staggering numbers,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, especially that that part about Italy. I didn't realize it was that high.
2: Right. Um, So your typical uh, mortality rate from influenza, the flu, runs around 0.1%. So if you figure that in the United States, our debt rates run in anywhere from one3 to 1.4%. That's 13 to 15 times uh, the debt rate for influenza. And then for, let's say, you did the same math against Italy, it's 90 to 100 times uh, the debt rate that would be expected for influenza.
1: Wow. Hmm. So, um, given that information, obviously there's going to be a lot of um, burden on on our healthcare providers, and since this is a podcast that mainly focuses on on healthcare providers, is there anything that you would like to ask of us? What can we do to help healthcare professionals and providers successfully combat this disease?
2: Uh, Number one, okay. Number one, you have to consider that and take the necessary precautions to not unnecessarily expose yourself. You know, it's not an if, it's likely a when that you may have a potential exposure. Um, This disease is moving so rapidly and it's so highly contagious that you're going to have to take steps. Uh, Number two, I think it's critical that all healthcare uh, providers keep up to date with the uh, latest data that's available, and you know the most reputable site that you can use at this point is the CDC's website. You know they are posting information, they are holding conference calls, and so you really need to take the time out. I don't think that you should just go by what you hear or or, or see in the lay press. Uh, I will tell you that I've been tracking this uh, very closely starting back on January 9th and the lay press has been actually pretty good about releasing information ahead of the CDC and most of the time it turns out to be relatively accurate. Uh, But, you know, again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not, the lay press is not a a scientific uh, group. And so you have to go by what's on the CDC right now, our only and our best weapon, okay. Against this disease is social, physical distancing, you know, cough etiquette, hand hygiene, and making sure that you are taking all the the necessary precautions. And as you can see around the world and within the United States, more and more Efforts are being made to try and make sure that we are not coming into close physical contact and potentially creating more and more hosts for this virus to replicate and become established in for the perpetual perpetuation of the disease and for its uh, spread. Mm.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you so much. That's incredibly helpful, I think, for people to hear. Um, it's. It's difficult on all sides of this disease. I think um, for healthcare providers who are putting themselves on the front lines, for people who are, um, you know, staying home—not because it's difficult necessarily to stay home, but because for, you know they've potentially been asked to not go to work, and and people are dependent on that. And so there's just a lot of facets to this, and I just appreciate your wisdom and your knowledge on the subject because we can as you say, we can get our information from a lot of different places. And so thank you for allowing us to to, um, spend a little bit of time picking your brain. And um, Megan, do you have anything else that you wanna ask or add? Um, I do have
0: just one more question if you don't mind sharing. What if someone, and I know again, there's a lot of information out there, but while we have you able to speak directly to people If someone um, is concerned that they are experiencing symptoms and believes that they may be infected, um, what should their first steps be? Should they show up at a doctor's office? Should they call first? Should they, where should they go and how should they go about um, seeking medical help? Um, What what is your advice there? And I know every clinic handles it differently, but what is the the general um, information for the public needing to seek medical attention?
2: So number one, if I were in that situation, uh, I'm telling people, assume you have the disease. Okay, so that's the first thing. So right there and then, you should be taking the necessary precautions to limit the spread to others, including in your household, because you may have an older adult, a grandparent, a parent, somebody living, or even uh, uh, a younger adult who has underlying high-risk uh situations okay uh they may have diabetes asthma they may have they may be immunocompromised for some reason so uh, the first thing i would do is make sure that i'm doing what i need to to protect those in my household then the next thing is no don't just show up at an er or a doctor's office or something uh, you should call first and dependent on where you are you know there are multiple uh Uh, phone opportunities, call your primary care clinician, call your local hospital. You know, here at Auburn University at the medical clinic, we have a dedicated COVID-19 line where our folks are screening over uh, the phone and then determining what the next step should be. The next step could be you should stay in place and self-quarantine for 14 days, or you should stay in place and self-monitor where you would be taking your temperature at least twice a day and keeping track or isolation. If you've been proven to have the disease, then you're in self isolation, which is different than quarantine. Isolation means you have it. And therefore you should be isolating yourself even within your household, staying in one bedroom, using one bathroom, you know, set of utensils and not interacting with people in your living situation. So, so, you know, first of all, assume that you have it until proven otherwise, and then talk to a healthcare professional through whatever mechanism. Don't just show up. The only reason to just show up is because you are really in an acute situation, uh, in which case you either dial in 911 or, or being taken to the hospital where you're uh, quite short of breath or something that's going on. So you know, what shortness of breath, a lot of people have an interpretation of what their shortness of breath is. My general uh, things that I tell people is shortness of breath, in my opinion, is that feeling after you've gone up two flights of stairs, and you feel you got to work a little harder to take a breath in that that's shortness of breath. But a lot of people right now are interpreting shortness of breath of, oh, I feel kind of congested, or I feel a little tight. Yeah, that's not really shortness of breath.
0: Thank you. That's, that's very helpful. And I think that hopefully that will help our listeners feel a little more comfortable with what to do if they are experiencing symptoms and, and how to seek help. So thank you for clarifying that.
2: You know, this, this is one of those situations, you know, because I've heard it again in the lay press and in the community that you're around. Oh, you know, why are we overreacting so much, et cetera, and stuff like that. Let me tell you, this is clearly a situation where overreaction is going to save lives. And that saving of life could be your family member. Yeah. It could be your parent, your grandparent, your, your, uh, your adult who has high risk, and this disease could potentially, again, be deadly to that person. So I'd rather that we overreact than we underreact.
1: Absolutely. I think this has been very, very beneficial. And again, Dr. Cam, thank you so much for giving your time. We know it's valuable. We know you have a lot of people to see. So thank you for adding us to your, to your list (laughs) and, um, and graciously spending your time with us. So, um, and to the listener, uh, thank you so much for spending time with us as well. Take good care.